Welcome to Tax and Super Australia's podcast, Tax Wrap, where we share developments, news and insights for all tax practitioners and SMSF professionals. If you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes and share. We'd love to hear back from you, so send questions and comments, even suggestions for guest speakers, to podcast at taxandsuperaustralia.com.au. Hello listeners, welcome to the Tax Wrap Podcast. We're into episode 181. I'm your host, Steve Burnham. Look, um, I thought this episode we might just look back over the year 2018 and uh, pick up on some of the episodes that were uh, seem to be very popular, that were listened to a lot. I thought we'd start off perhaps with one that uh, is episode 155, where we had uh, Mark Pizzicala from BDO and, and the Board of Taxation uh, come in to talk about uh, private company loans and Division 7A. Let's have a listen. Um, now, we had last week a, a special guest, Mark Pizzicala from BDO and the Board of Taxation, and Mark agreed, has agreed to come back this week. So thanks for doing that, Mark. Thanks, Steve. Happy to have to travel Today. too far. Not too far. Um, we, now, mm. let's, you, wanted to, you were going to talk about private company loans in Division 7A, um, which comes up every now and then. And um, first of all, just to clarify more for me than uh, anyone out listening out there, I, I'd imagine, but uh, can you des- describe Division 7A? What's it all about? Sure. Well, in short, Division 7A is, is a provision in the tax legislation that's been there since um, 1997. Um, and it's a section of the legislation that contains, if you like, an anti-avoidance provision. And these provisions are aimed at preventing private company owners and their associates from avoiding tax on dividends by trying to access company profits in another form other than dividends. Okay, could you clarify what the other forms are? Sure. So the other forms uh, include, but not limited to, things like uh, an advance of a loan, advances of cash, a gift or the writing off of a debt that was otherwise um, receivable from the shareholder or owner of the business. So when is a payment deemed to be a dividend? So generally, all payments made by a private company to a shareholder are are treated as as dividends uh, at the end of the company's uh, year of income, provided there is what we call a sufficient distributable surplus in the company. Okay. For instance, when is a payment not a dividend? So some payments are not a dividend when they're made by a private company um, to a shareholder or their associate. So examples of, of items which are not a dividend would include a repayment of a genuine debt owed to a shareholder or its associate by the company, a payment to another company uh, by this company, right. a payment that's otherwise accessible under another provision of the, of the Tax Act, a payment made to a shareholder or their associate uh, in their capacity as an employee, where it might be, you know, salary oh, right. wages, etc. Yep. Also, liquidators distributions are not included uh, under that category either. Okay, so something that I've um, figured out from listening to uh, some of our members' queries is that they don't actually understand who Division 7A applies to. Could you just clarify who it actually applies to? Sure. Well, Division 7A applies to... It's applied in relation to private companies. All loans, advances and other credits made by private companies to shareholders and their associates. Um, So it's highly relevant, if you like, if you're operating in the SME sector, highly relevant if you're operating a private business and that's being operated via a company. Right. And the reason, I was just going to say, Steve, the reason... um, Uh, it's important is because, you know, quite often family businesses in particular, um, owners of family businesses fail to understand that, you know, when you set up a structure, those structures are separate and independent to yourself as an individual. Oh, yeah. But 
family businesses look at structures, whether it's they might have a structure that involves companies and trusts, and they consider it all to be them yeah, as individuals, yeah, yeah. Um, as opposed to understanding that while well, a company is a separate entity, a trust is a separate entity, they things they do need to be viewed in isolation as as and rules that apply to those entities, yeah, yeah. rather than. Um, looking at it from a economic group concept, which is what family owners do. That's, that's me and my business, so therefore it's all me kind of thing. I can, Correct. Yeah, you can understand how they would think that. You can understand mm. that. So, so in what circumstances would we find Div- Division 7A applying? So it can apply in quite a number of circumstances. Just to mention a few, amounts paid by a company to a shareholder, um, including transfers of property for less than the amount that would have been paid in an arm's length transaction, Amounts lent by a company to a shareholder, which is not repaid in full uh, by the time the return is due, and also debts forgiven, which were owed by the shareholder, uh, but the company forgives those debts. So just with these um, loans, um, when are loans treated as dividends? So where a private company makes a loan to a shareholder uh, or their associate and the loan is not fully repaid by the end of you know that income year, the loan may be treated as a dividend again assuming there's a sufficient distributable surplus. Okay, so when are loans not treated as dividends then? So examples where they may not be treated as dividends include pre-4 December 1997 loans, um, a loan fully repaid in the same year, a loan to a company uh, but one not acting as a trustee, a loan made in the ordinary course of uh, a business under commercial terms. They're just some examples that fall under that, uh, that category. So, Mark, is there, is there any, any way of avoiding Division 7A? Well, I don't know that avoiding is the right term, Steve, but oh, right, we might no. say minimising, yep. I guess, but, but certainly um, certainly there, there is some limited ex- exemptions and um, exceptions, I should say. And one example is if, um, is if there are payments made between two companies, so company-to-company type transactions are yep. ignored. Yep. Um, another example is where there might be a Division 7A deemed dividend, but it might be capped to the distributable surplus of the company. Distributable surplus. You've, you've mentioned actually um, those words a couple of times. What exactly is a distributable surplus and, and how does that have an impact on the um, amount of Division 7A deemed dividends? Sure. Well, a distributable surplus is the total of all deemed dividends that, are, that a private company has taken to pay under Division 7A being limited to the distributable surplus of, of that income year. So, for instance, if there is a deemed dividend of, you know, a few, uh, let's say $100,000, um, but the company's distributable surplus is less than that, then the amount of the deemed dividend would be reduced to the lower number. And I, sh- and I should say that if the distributable surplus is nil, then then, then no Division 7A matter arises. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Right. So is there any other way to avoid Division 7A? What taxpayers should do if they do have a Division 7A issue is, as you say, to enter into a complying Division 7A loan agreement, which basically, well, it essentially puts the loan on more of a arm's length time uh, type focus, um, whereby the company um, and the taxpayer enter into a loan <clears throat> and agree to make commercial repayments oh, uh, right. Under the under specific requirements under Division Seven A, yeah. is that a specific agreement? I mean, that's a, a particular agreement that they need to draw up. It's like it's almost like any other loan agreement, but there are specifics involved to, in order to make it be eligible to be a Division Seven A loan agreement. Okay. And so you would need to look to the Division Seven A rules and make sure they're satisfied. Right. So, um, well, let's say Division Seven A is triggered. What are the consequences? 
Well, where it is triggered, triggered the, the recipient um, shareholder is deemed to have received a dividend equal to the amount of the payment, the loan or, or the forgiveness, um, assuming there's no Division 7A loan agreement in place. Right. With uh, Division 7A, what, what mistakes have you found that seem to be quite common? So there's a number of, of common mistakes, but obviously not repaying a company loan where a loan has been made to a shareholder and um, not entering into a Division 7A loan agreement, that's... That's a clear issue. Um, secondly, when a taxpayer signs a 25-year complying Division 7A loan agreement on the date, on or before the date the company that lodges its return, but forgets that the loan agreement requires a reg registered mortgage over the property, which is one of the requirements of Division 7A, that's another issue. So, uh, and 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 an error which is quite common. Well, there you go. And um, another one of the popular episodes is episode 164, uh, where we had Simon Dorovich from um, A&A Tax Legal Consulting, is that the name? Yes. Uh, come in to discuss uh, FBT in relation to um, to vehicles, uh, and, but also to talk about what is a fringe benefit. Let's have a listen. We have, as our special guest, we have Simon Dorovich back with us. Uh, Simon is the Assistant Tax Manager at A&A &A Tax Legal Consulting. Thanks again for coming out, Simon. Uh, my pleasure, Steve. Um, now, last time we had you here, we were talking about FBT, the new things in FBT. Uh, that was a fortnight ago. Uh, people, do you think they've finished their FBT returns yet? Uh, only if they're very, very keen. Uh, <laughs> in, in my experience, uh, by, by this time, uh, I've still got quite a few to, to go. Okay, so they've still got their returns. And uh, David, when, when do people have to uh, to finish these FBT returns? Okay, if they're um, lodging them by themselves, uh, they have to lodge and pay by the 21st of May. Yep. A nice little rhyme there to remember that. That's right. <laughs> um, if they go through a tax agent um, and assuming they lodge electronically, uh, it must be lodged by the 25th of June, but payment must be made by the 28th of May. So, Simon, you must still have clients that are scrambling to get advice from you about what to do or, you know, can I claim this, can I claim that? Yeah, that sort of thing. Uh, yeah de definitely. What's a perennial sort of issue, um, I suppose, vehicles are a thing that people keep coming back to? Yeah, car fringe benefits are certainly one of, if, if not the most common type of, of fringe benefit. Right. Uh, uh, certainly in terms of total expenditure, yep. uh, I, it would be the, the highest. Uh, so I thought perhaps today we could focus on uh, on car fringe benefits. Sure. Uh, Good. W when is a car fringe benefit provided, and uh, if one is provided, then how do you go about valuing it? Yep. Yep. Okay. Well, what's the where we start? Uh, well, perhaps let's go through this uh, uh, methodically. Yep. Uh, so for a car fringe benefit to arise, uh, there needs to be a car. Uh, it, the car needs to be held by a provider, uh, it needs to be provided to an employee or yep. their associate in respect of employment, uh, and finally the car uh, needs to be applied to uh, private use by the employee or their associate, uh, or alternatively deemed to be available for private use. Okay, yep. Uh, so if we, we step through those one by one, uh, when a car fringe benefit won't be provided if the vehicle being provided isn't a car. Right. Uh, yeah, as in a normal standard vanilla car. 
If it's uh, a, yeah, so, so car has a specific meaning for uh, income tax and FBT purposes. Mm. Uh, so uh, a car is defined as a motor vehicle that has a carrying capacity of less than one tonne and is designed to carry fewer than nine passengers. Uh, so if, if you look at that definition, you'll see that a motorbike uh, is not a car. Uh, no, a minivan that has nine or more seats, uh, again, not a car. Right. Uh, and uh, a ute or a truck with a carrying capacity of one tonne or more, mm. Uh, mm. not a car. So if th- those types of vehicles are being provided, uh, it uh, may very well give rise to a fringe benefit, yep. t- typically a, a residual fringe benefit, uh, but it won't be a car fringe no. benefit. So, so but nine or less people is uh, the... What uh, with a carrying... Fewer than nine. Fewer than so nine. Eight or less. Eight or less. I don't know. Even that's a lot of people. If you say you're trying to get into the driving, uh, yeah. <laughs> but um, it's it's a, a quite generous. But it uh, seems like like a, a large number of people to cram into a car. But uh, but still, if that's what the law says. Uh, yeah. So just you know, keep in mind uh, before racing down and assuming that uh, you're dealing with a car fringe benefit. Yep, uh, check, just check that. Che- yeah. Just make sure it, it is actually a car that, yeah. that you're dealing with. <laughs> uh, now, the the next criteria that I mentioned uh, is that the car needs to be held by a provider. Uh, typically, that's the employer. Right, yeah. Uh, so when, when wouldn't that be the case? Uh, for example, uh, if the... Uh, a short-term lease, so less than 12 weeks. So if uh, the, the employer hires a vehicle for 10 weeks and provides that to a, uh, an employee, uh, that would give rise to a residual fringe benefit rather than, or, or an expense payment fringe benefit, potentially, oh, okay. <clears throat> uh, but not a car fringe benefit because the ATO's view is that a, a short-term hire car uh, is not held by the by the provider. No, I see. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Uh, another example, quite a common one, is when the employee owns or leases the car, and the employer pays or reimburses car expenses, uh, or uh, when an employee, I'm sorry, an employer pays a fixed car allowance. Right. Uh, those are not car fringe benefits because, in those scenarios that I just outlined. It's the employee who holds the car, oh, right. uh, not the the employer or, or other provider. Yep, yep, I see. Uh, then there's potentially no car fringe benefit if the car isn't provided in respect of employment. Uh, and he, here we're looking perhaps potentially as, at uh, a family relationship may be the reason that the car was provided rather than an employment relationship or perhaps because the recipient is a shareholder uh, of the of the company. Uh, That's interesting. So would that be a case where there's a family business, say, and the, the, the dad buys the son who works in the business a car for his 18th birthday or something like that? Um, is that the kind of a scenario that we're looking at? Like yeah, if, yeah. If yeah. it's an associate uh, or family member. Yeah, uh, absolutely, p- potentially. Uh, and, and here we, we're looking at the interaction between... Uh, Division 7A, uh, which can apply to payments from a private company uh, and payment for Division A, Division 7A purposes uh, can include the provision of an asset right. uh, and fringe benefits tax. Uh, however, typically, 
uh, FBT would take precedence over Division 7A. Is that so, right? Okay. So, so in mo most cases, uh, you'll reach the conclusion uh, in borderline cases that the car is provided in respective yeah. employment. Yeah, yeah, and, and therefore a fringe benefit. Exactly right. right. Okay. Yep. Uh, though potentially subject to to an exemption, but yep, yep. generally speaking, yes, a fringe. We're headed in that direction. Uh, now, the uh, the last thing that I mentioned in you know discussing when does a car fringe benefit arise yep. is, of course, uh, private use. Whether it's uh, actually used for applied for private use or or available for private use, uh, or whether it's deemed to be or taken to be available for private use, right. regardless of how it is actually used. Uh, now, a car will be taken to be available for private use where it's garaged or kept at or near the place of residence of an employee or an associate, uh, and that's uh, even if the place of residence is also the place of business. Uh, so there was a case where uh, somebody... Uh, worked worked from home, uh, and they obviously parked their their car there yeah. because that's where they both worked and lived, uh, and tried to argue that the car wasn't available for private use because it was kept at the employer's business premises. Right, uh, which I thought which just was happened <laughs> to be the where they lived. <laughs> just happened to be uh, <laughs> worth a go, uh, but uh, unfortunately, the ATO said yes, but it's also near your uh, private premises, yeah, yeah, uh, and therefore the car was deemed to be available for private use. Do they? Uh, it's it's <coughs> begs not begs the question, but it raises a question in my mind. How? F what's the distance? <laughs> how? What's the near? How far does your residence have to be away? I know it's probably not spelled out in the legislation, but it's uh, just an interesting question to to ask yourself. Yeah, th there's no specific number that the ATO gives, yeah. but. Uh, you know, my guidance would be uh, it, it needs to be a bit of a pain to, to walk it. Oh, yeah, it needs okay, to be yeah. quite inconvenient. <laughs> All right, that's a good, good uh, guidance. A bit of a pain. All right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, and uh, there is uh, another way that a car can be taken to be available for private use, uh, and that's when the car is not at the employer's business premises and either the employee or an associate is entitled to use the car for private purposes or the employee or an associate has custody and control of the car and is not performing employment duties. So it can be quite challenging to uh, reduce the number of days that uh, a car is considered not to be deemed to be available for, yeah, for private yeah. use. Uh, my recommendation is uh, when an employee is travelling for an extended period of time, because that's often the uh, a scenario where uh, clearly they they won't be using the the vehicle. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If they fly to uh, fly overseas for business yeah, for a few yep. weeks. Yeah. Uh, and you wouldn't want uh, even in that scenario. Uh, potentially the vehicle is deemed to be available. Uh, so what, what you should do is the employee should park the car at the employer's business premises oh, I see. Uh, and hand the keys over. Uh, and the employer should have a, a written and enforced policy prohibiting private use by the employee 
during that time. That period, yeah. Uh, and if those conditions are satisfied, then the ATO uh, will most likely accept that the car uh, isn't available for private use. Yeah, yeah. Well, they couldn't uh, deem otherwise if it's, uh, as you said... Keys have been handed over, it's at the business premises, etc. Yeah, well, yeah. you'd be surprised how strictly they interpret these things. There, uh. There's been cases where the employee uh, will park the car, uh, drive to the airport, long-term parking, yep. then park the car and uh, fly to to Europe and keep the, the car keys... Uh, in the bottom of the bag? In the it? bottom of the bag, yeah, and yeah. Uh, the ATO says, well... The, you know, that car was available oh. for, for you to use. You could have flown home from Paris and driven it around <laughs> any time yeah, you exactly. wanted. <laughs> uh, and so actually some uh, airport car parking have even got uh, uh, class rulings issued by the ATO. So, really? Yeah. So, for example, in Melbourne, there's uh, Andrews Airport Parking uh, and they have something called a, a bailment agreement. Uh, so if you, if you park there under a, uh, that particular agreement... Uh, then you've you've got that certainty that uh, the ATO has looked into it and yep. they've said, well, if you do that, then uh, the car's not... We'll accept that the car's not available. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So there must have been enough cases for that to be worthwhile pursuing, getting that, uh, what did you call it, bailment agreement? Uh, a bailment agreement, yes. Wow. There's, there's another airport in Sydney that I can't quite recall the name of that's got a, a similar uh, ruling okay. issue. Okay, so, um, yeah, worth perhaps that's you... helpful for their business to be sure. able to say to their customers yeah. that, yeah, we potentially get you a better FBT treatment. Yeah, <laughs> it's interesting. And having cars being such a popular FBT item, of course. Um, mm. But it would be interesting, though, if practitioners have clients that do do a lot of travel, have a car under any of these arrangements. Yeah, good good clue. Yeah. Mention to them, look, if you're in Sydney or Melbourne or anywhere out there airport that has this bailment agreement, could be worth looking into. Mm. All right. Yeah, so, so look, now I think we've covered when uh, a car fringe benefit arises, arises and, yep. and when it doesn't arise. Yep. Uh, so I thought perhaps next we could look at how to value that, that fringe benefit. Oh, could sure. I just jump in with a quick question first, Simon? Yeah, yeah. sure, um, David. Are there any exempt car benefits out there? Uh, yes, well, there's, there's actually the one that I talked about in the last podcast is one that mm. comes to mind. Uh, and that's an exemption for uh, particular types of uh, cars and and non-cars uh, that uh, utes, panel vans are the, the, the typical examples uh, where they're used uh, in a particular exempt way. So those listeners that might recall uh, last, uh, last podcast, I, I talked about there needs to be uh, use limit to uh, to work related travel, uh, travel between home and work and and back again, uh, and other uh, private use that is minor, incidental, and infrequent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there was, of course, that uh, draft uh, practical compliance guideline that mm-hmm. that looked into the safe harbour uh, provisions of just what is meant by minor and frequent uh, and irregular. That was a PCG 2016-10, I believe. And if if listeners want to listen to that, uh, Tax Wrap Podcast 163 was the last one. It's the first segment in that that podcast. Okay. Um, You were saying, Simon? Uh, 
Yeah, so the, the statutory formula method, uh, that's one of two methods to value a car fringe benefit. It's, it's the most uh, popular method. I think it's over 70%, Is it? Right. the ATO statistics tell us. Yep. Uh, and that's, I think, predominantly because it's, it's relatively uh, simple to apply and it, it doesn't have uh, onerous record-keeping requirements okay. uh, in terms of maintaining a valid logbook yep. that uh, the operating cost method uh, has. Yep. Yep. Uh, so the, the statutory formula method, uh, as the name suggests, uh, there's a particular formula, uh, A times B times C, uh, uh, etc., uh, that if you work out what each of those components of the formula are, uh, and plug them into the formula, that will give you the, the taxable value. Right. So the first element of the formula, the, the A in the formula, is the, the base value of the vehicle. Uh, now, that's really important to get right because uh, typically you'll calculate it in the year that you acquire the car uh, and then you carry it forward in your work papers and not look at it too closely. Yeah, so, yeah. so if you make a mistake... Uh, in year one, you're you're potentially making a mistake in you know, years two, three, four, etc. Yes, all the way down. Yeah. Uh, so, what you don't want to do is look to the uh, the depreciation worksheet and just take that that amount uh, and treat that as the base value for FBT purposes, uh, because well, you'd be excluding a number of things that should be included, for example, uh, GST. Ah, of course. Uh, so for FBT, uh, you're, you're looking at the GST uh, inclusive values, uh, even when the employer is, is registered for, for GST. Okay. Uh, luxury car tax is, is another one. Uh, for depreciation, your, uh, your depreciation total depreciation claim is limited to the uh, the depreciation cost limit. The, the, yeah, yeah. Uh, but there, there's no no equivalent for FBT. No, if if no. you buy a car for 150,000, then uh, using the statutory formula method, uh, the taxable value is, is going to be calculated by reference to that. Yeah, because uh, when, when you consider fringe benefit is in lieu of or instead of cash salary, so of course the other costs that are involved, you know, GST, whatever else. Um, needs to be taken in, uh, taken into account. Yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, dealer and delivery charges is is oh, another yeah, thing right. to include, and and non business accessories. So, uh, obviously, what's business and non business uh, will depend on the the business of the employer. Yes, but, that's true. Uh, generally speaking, uh, a stereo or a customized wheels or personalized number plates th- those would <laughs> uh, certainly in most cases be non-business yeah, yeah. accessories. Uh, there are some things that you can exclude, though. So if you're not, then you're, you're paying too much FBT. Right. Uh, make sure you exclude registration costs, uh, stamp duty on transfer, uh, and uh, business accessories added after acquisition. Okay, yep. So any, any I don't know what business accessory, say a, a vice that you bolt onto the back of the... Yeah, like I suppose a, a tow bar or, tow bar, or yeah. a, a radio, uh, a two-way, a two-way radio, radio yeah. thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, 
it, it depends on what the uh, the special needs of the business yeah, yeah. are. Okay, something to keep in mind. Yeah. Now, now, once the car has been held for for full FBT years, uh, so looking now at the twenty eighteen FBT year, uh, you should be asking yourself, was the car acquired on or before thirty one March twenty thirteen? Right. Uh, then the employer can reduce that base value by one third. Uh, uh, so effectively, that's a concession that the ATO allows, and that will reduce the. Okay, so uh, after FBT after payable. four full FBT years, take a third off. Yep, that's okay. right. The, I, said, I didn't the, know that. The, tra- the trap is to remember that it has to be four full FBT yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if you come in in June, well, just you got to wait till the next May. Uh, no. Well, uh, in uh, uh, remember FBT exactly right. Yep. FBT and then is start. that different okay. different year. Yep. But yeah, that's right. All right. Excellent. Uh. Now, once you've uh, calculated the the base value, the the a in the formula, mm-hmm. uh, you multiply that by a statutory fraction or a statutory percentage, if if you prefer to call it that. Uh, now, you you might remember that there used to be these these different bands depending on uh, how many kilometres the, oh, the car yes. was driven. Yeah, yeah, and uh, which resulted in the unfortunate result was that pe- people would sometimes drive a lot more just to get up to that next band of uh, yeah, Ks. Yeah, yeah I've, I've, I've heard stories of uh, employers sending uh, emails around uh, to... Uh, those <laughs> get out of the road! Were, yeah, <laughs> uh, which obviously I think is not uh, really a great thing for... Not the, the environment. And for not the for environment. A, yeah. and, uh, so I think quite sensibly they uh, got rid of those bands and replaced it with a, a flat 20%, regardless yep. of kilometres driven. Uh, However, one thing to keep in mind is these these new rules, the flat 20%, was brought in for cars provided on or before 10th of May 2011. Uh, And some employers uh, may still have some older vehicles uh, that may still be subject to the the old rules, the the four different uh, statutory fractions. Uh, Those employers need to be mindful of uh yeah has anything been done to to vary the uh the arrangement under which that car is being provided uh so you know has they have they paid out a lease residual or refinanced the car uh-huh. uh yeah potentially they've then triggered uh triggered these new rules of okay of the so if it's not exactly down the same arrangements as it initially it, it started on it's got to toe the line to the new rules. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. So eventually we'll we'll find all vehicles subject Under to the, the, same. The, the flat 20%, yep. but potentially there are still uh, employers on, on the old rules, and uh, it, particularly if their employees are dra- travelling you know, significant numbers of kilometres, yeah, yeah. Uh, then uh, that's an opportunity to reduce the FBT payable. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so then you look at uh, the days in the FBT year that a car fringe benefit is provided uh, and also the number of days in the FBT year. Uh, I don't quite recall if it's a, a leap year or not, but <laughs> <laughs> make sure you, you double-check just to get that uh, formula exactly right. Uh, now, days in the FBT year that a car fringe benefit is provided... Uh, 
that's referring to what I was talking about earlier. Was it actually used for private purposes? Was it deemed oh. to be available for private use because yep. it was, for example, garaged near the employee's home? Uh, so by reducing that number of days, uh, you know, when the employee is travelling or perhaps it's in for repairs or uh, perhaps, unfortunately, they've... Uh, had an extended stay in hospital or uh, whatever the case may be, that uh, if the number of days that the car fringe benefit is deemed to be provided can yep. be reduced, then under the statutory formula method, the uh, taxable value of the fringe benefit will be reduced. Okay, right. Uh, now, the, the final element of the formula, uh, a way to reduce the, uh, the taxable value is a recipient's payment that the employee... Or pa- puts in to... For, pays for fuel or that sort of thing. Exactly right. It, yeah, yeah okay. pays for fuel is, is a great example. Yep. Uh, most car expenses uh, that the employee pays for will, will count as the recipient's payment and reduce that taxable value and uh, the FBT payable. But there are a few to just be mindful of. Yep. Uh, if we're talking about road and bridge tolls, you know, for example, uh, e-tag, uh, car parking fines, speeding fines, uh, non-business accessories that the employee has chosen to add, yep. these sorts of payments won't reduce the recipient's payment. No, okay. Uh, but if you're talking about you know, fuel and repairs, then uh, yeah, that that's a great way to reduce o- the operational costs. Value. I suppose you're keeping the vehicle on the road. Yes. Okay. Uh, now, the contribution must be made before the lodgement of the FPT return. So okay. uh, make sure you get the timing right as well. Yep, yep. And does the employee have to provide the employer with a, a you know, receipts or some kind of evidence of uh, that expenditure? Yes, the, they, they do. Hmm. Uh, though there are some uh, concessional rules for certain types of expenditure. Uh, so generally speaking, the expenses must be substantiated. Yep. Uh, but if we're talking about uh, petrol expenses or small expenses, uh, and small for these purposes is defined as under $10 each and under $200 in total, right. uh, then you don't need to provide uh, a receipt from from the, the petrol station, for okay. example. Yep. But you still need to provide a uh, an estimate and a declaration. Okay. So uh, a reasonable, reasonable estimate that you've signed, yeah, this is what I spent on car fresheners or... No. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> you would spend right. more than $200 on fuel, I would imagine, in a, in a, in a year. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, and there's also undocumentable expenses. Undocumentable. But, and th- that's defined as something that uh, will typically... You won't be given a receipt for. Huh. Uh, Can't think of an example. Uh, yeah, perhaps car parking. Maybe you put money in the, the oh, meter. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's true, yep. And... Uh, yeah, you, you don't get... It, the timer goes down and yeah. to nothing and you've you've paid for it, but yeah, 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 that makes sense. Is there any um, GST that you need to be aware of with the employee contributions? Yes, great point. Ah, yeah, I forgot about that. Uh, <laughs> it's the tax man talking there. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, income tax and GST, of course, because the, the employee uh, contribution uh, is income to the uh, employer. Oh, yeah. Uh, and... Uh, GST, uh, assuming now that the employer is registered for GST, mm. uh, 
one eleventh of of that uh, needs to be remitted to the ATO on the the business activity mm, statement. Yeah. So, uh, th- one of the things that the ATO has actually identified as uh, something that they're going to be looking at more is uh, employers who have claimed that there's no FPT to pay because the because of a recipient's contribution yep. uh, has reduced the taxable value to nil, but they're not included that recipient's contribution as income on their tax return yep. or uh, you know, paid the GST uh, through their business activity yeah, statements. Yeah, that's amazing. It's, it's, they're just caught out by that little uh, detail, which might not be such a little detail if you have a, a larger company with a lot of cars and a lot of employees. Yes. That's yeah. interesting. I find uh, often with employers who... Uh, owner-operated businesses. It's the 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 owner director yep. who's being provided with a car. Uh, they'll often do a recipient's contribution via a journal entry, uh, which is uh, perfectly okay. The ATO's confirmed that. Yep. Uh, it could, of course, be used in the case of a an arm's length employee, but in practice, I've found it's it's often more that, often that uh, uh, scenario. That's a director shareholder who's. Uh, is doing it that way. Yep, yep, fair enough. Makes sense. I think unless there's any questions about the statutory formula method, perhaps we'll move on to finish yep. off with the, the operating cost method. Okay, which is thanks. Of course the, yes, please. The other of the two methods. The, uh, the 30% that, uh, uh, method. Exactly right. So <laughs> if, if 70% are using the statutory formula method, it must mean <laughs> that 30% are using the operating cost method. Uh, and for those 30%, it, it's probably because they're employees are uh, are using the vehicles for a substantial business use uh, uh, percentage uh, because the operating cost method applies that business use percentage to the the operating costs of the vehicle to determine the the taxable value. So the the higher the the business use, uh, the, the more the car was used for business trips rather than personal trips, uh, the uh, the lower the FBT uh, payable. So uh, what's a business trip? Uh, well, it has to be exclusively for business purposes. So if uh, a trip has a dual private and business purpose, uh, that's considered a private trip. Uh, right. The ATO has been quite quite strict on that. Uh, you know, earlier I talked about... Uh, sorry, not earlier, but in the the uh, previous podcast, uh, a diversion to pick up a newspaper or, or drop your children that's off right. at school. Yep, that's right. Uh, so going back to those examples, that would be considered by the ATO uh, in the context of the operating cost method, a, uh, a a private trip, not a and so off the table. Not a, off the table. Okay. Uh, some people think that having company signage on the car will make. Uh, make every trip a, a business trip. It's it's advertising, advertising yeah, right. the, the business. Uh, but no, no, unfortunately, that's not how the uh, the ATO views things. Okay. So to to establish what the business use percentage is, uh, you need to keep a logbook for twelve weeks that makes note of the the odometer readings and the the distance travelled and and what the nature of the the trip was. Uh, so you know, don't just write 
business trip. No, uh, no. Yeah. Include a bit of detail. Okay. The, you know, for example, the, the, the name of the client. The client. They see yeah, just a view of construction of this or whatever they've done there. And I know that there's a, um, a few app, phone apps that can uh, take care of all of that, distance and... Uh, yeah, and that, that's right. Yeah, you, all, yeah, linked up to your, your GPS. Yep. And uh, there's no official... Uh, you know, template that the ATO provides, is, is, but as long as it's got all the information, or certain information if, provided, yeah, yeah. If you do it through uh, through an app, or if you just write it down by hand on yep, a piece yep. of paper, as long as it has all the the information needed to to calculate the you know the business use percentage, yeah, then yep. uh, that's okay by the ATO. Good. So it just needs the date of the journey, the odometer reading at the beginning and the end. Uh, and a description of the the purpose of right. the journey. Okay. The, there was one last thing I, I wanted to mention sure. about the the logbook, uh, is that the ATO's view is that the employer should also take into account any uh, variation in the the use of the vehicle. Uh, so, for example, if a logbook was kept in year one, uh, where the employee was travelling uh, extensively. Uh, every day uh, had a business use percentage up in the 90s yep. uh, and the logbook once kept for 12 weeks is valid for five FBT years uh, and so we fast forward to year four and that employee has got a promotion and is now uh, you know, stays behind their desk. Drives a desk more than the car. Yeah, <laughs> exactly yeah. right, drives okay. a desk more than the car yeah. uh, and in reality their, their car is really used substantially less than that 90% that the... Uh, that the first the, year indicated? Yeah. The, right. the ATO's view is that it is not appropriate to, to continue to use that that 90%. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So you have to do, do another logbook, keep another record, or uh, or depends on the case, I suppose? Yeah. You could, you could do another logbook, uh, or you could just... Uh, you know, be mindful of it and consider have the logbook as one factor that you consider, and oh, yeah. the updated uh, employment details as another, and uh, and and so on, and yeah, come yeah, to a, yeah. a reasonable reduction based can, on on, uh, on that scenario. Yeah. I can imagine the time when, um, with as you mentioned, GPS, etc., when you get uh, data feeds from people's phones. The ATO will know when you're not travelling so much because of all the readings. I've got to imagine all the data matching that they could do uh, in the future. Yeah, anyway. I, th I think one of the uh, the themes of uh, FBT this year in terms of what the ATO is is doing and what they're looking out for mm -hmm. is is uh, just continuing to get better at, at data matching and data right. analytics and uh, sharing data with uh, other uh, departments and yeah, yeah, government yeah. agencies and and so on and uh, so you're if you're doing the wrong thing the uh, the chances of getting caught are higher than ever higher. before so uh, well, one, one likes make to sure look you at, do the right thing one likes to look at the other side of the same coin in in that uh, you may be at a disadvantage that all the data may show that you actually are are paying too much tax I mean let's uh, let's hope for that future uh, as well though I'm, I'm not so sure that the ATO will contact you if they think you're paying too much tax <laughs> but too. maybe I'm not giving them enough no, okay <laughs> and we're back um, now tax and super Australia um, provide a helpline service for members where members can ring in tax practitioners who are members can ring in with a problem maybe they've got to be given a curly conundrum by their client 
and they can ring us and get the answer. Uh, there's been a bit of movement lately. Uh, a lot of the helpline calls lately have been on, on subjects uh, such as commercial debt forgiveness, testamentary trusts. There uh, have also been questions on co cost basis and pre and post 1985 uh, CGT issues um, and the two-year rule on main residences. And uh, I spoke to the, our head of uh, our senior tax specialist, Michael McCarthy, about one of these topics, which is commercial debt, and here's, here's what we uncovered. Okay, Michael, now, so tell us about the... Uh, now, you had a case that came through on the hot, uh, hotline, <laughs> helpline, um, recently about uh, regarding commercial debt forgiveness. Tell us the details. Yeah, look, this was one, Steve, where a member rang in and it was a shareholder that had loaned money to a company. Yep. And they wanted to tidy up the balance sheet of the company to get rid of some of the loans. I think there was a new buyer or a shareholder coming in. Oh, yeah. And yeah. so they were just going through that. And he went through what he was doing. He did the uh, the entries for the for the loan to be forgiven. Now, so sorry, the shareholder lent the company money. Shareholder okay. lent the company money. A lot yep. of times, the company lends shareholders. That's the Division Seven A scenario, yep. isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, and, and if that happens, you do have the Div Seven A issues. Yep. Fringe yep. benefits tax issues. So right, there's, right. Um, there are quite a few issues to be concerned okay. with there. But this is the other direction. So it's the shareholder giving to the company, loaning, loaning. Yeah, loaning to the company. Okay. So so those issues weren't there. But the member, I suppose, thought, well, there's got to be something going on with tax. Yeah, yeah. Um, because if the loan's forgiven, the shareholder, well, basically, is likely liable to uh, claim a capital loss on that loan. Ah, okay. So yeah, because it's capital it's, uh, on capital account. On capital account, right, yeah. So okay. it's lent, lent money to the uh, company. And that's an asset. Uh, so. Forgiven the company of that amount. Right. Um, so an asset to the shareholder. Shareholder, yeah. Shareholder's getting nothing for his loan. Huh. So arguably there, there's a capital loss for the shareholder. For him, yep. So I suppose the member's thinking, okay, on that side of things, there's a capital loss. As always with taxes, the other side of the coin. Right, If right. there's a loss, there might be a gain somewhere else. Yep. And, uh, and that was the query is uh, in the books of the account, I suppose, if we go back to our debits and credits, okay. you debit the shareholder's loan, and in this case he credited the profit and loss, he called an extraordinary item, like a debt forgiven. Yep. So there's the credit there um, that shows up, and what's the tax issues of that? Right, that's interesting. And what, what was the outcome? So w with that, it was... Basically, determining is it a commercial debt? Oh, yeah. And that's yeah. probably uh, the first thing to do. Um, and with Division 245 of the 97 Act, um, it goes through then the steps of okay, let's determine is it a commercial debt forgiven? Right. So, so in that case, we've got to go to some of the steps to say okay, is it a commercial debt? Now, if the whole or any part of the interest paid or payable in respect of a debt would be allowed as a tax deduction, Oh, yeah. Then it's satisfying the commercial debt requirements. Right. Now, this loan, there was no interest. No, okay, yep. But the test doesn't stop as uh, if the interest. It also says that if interest isn't payable, then it'll be a commercial debt where if interest had have been payable. So sometimes in the Tax Act, they have these deeming provisions okay. like what if there was interest. Yep. And this is um, this is one of those. Okay, okay. So yep. what if there was interest? So the shareholder's going to... Uh, he's lent the money interest-free. Interest if there was interest, 
it, it's a good argument that the shareholder would have claimed that interest oh, on his tax return. Yep. And the reason for that would be the shareholders lent money to the company. Yep. And in the anticipation of getting dividends, a from return. The company. Yeah. Yeah. A yep. return. Right. So in that regard, there's an argument to say if there was interest, it would have been deductible to the shareholder in that case. Yep. So that, that's one of the first things to look at. Um, and just on that, if it's not the whole debt that's forgiven, oh. if it's only part of a debt, yep. that still doesn't alter the fact that the whole debt will be a commercial debt right. forgiven. Yep. Now, so that's, that's the first thing. The second thing, there's got to obviously be a forgiven debt. Third thing is, are there any exclusions what, what does that mean? Now, exclusions are things like, you know, is it done under bankruptcy law? Was it done by a will? I, I get it, I see. Yeah. Um, your podcast recently, you mentioned natural love and affection. That's right. That's right. A, yep, yep, uh, okay. TD with that. Yep. So those sort of things say then that no, that's excluded from being a commercial debt forgiven. Right. Other things, again, this was a case where the shareholder loaned money, but the other way around, it could be like the debt is waived and there's fringe benefits and Div 7A implications if it's the other way around. If it's around. the other from the company yeah. to the shareholder. Yeah, yeah if the company yeah. forgives the debt. Right. So once we've determined then that we said, okay, this is a commercial debt forgiven, yep. then that's where the tax um, effect kicks in. Okay. Now, the member, I suppose, was thought at the time, oh, the, is this income that we've got to pay tax on? which wouldn't oh, be a yeah. great result for no. them. And that's not the case. But what happens for a commercial debt forgiven is the amount forgiven, you'll deduct any amount that has been received, and right. then you'll get to a net forgiven amount. And then with that net forgiven amount, it's that amount that has a tax effect by four, four steps. The first one is you reduce the carry-forward revenue tax losses right yep. so if the company has revenue tax losses they're they're reduced yep if the company has uh net capital losses they are reduced if there's expenditure that's in the balance sheet such as depreciable assets all oh, right yep they're reduced so you're losing future depreciation oh, okay of course yeah so these, these are the uh, the effects that can happen with cost base of uh, cgt assets they can be reduced. Right, yep. So then you, you've got a lesser cost base and the to tax start effect yep. in the future is a yep. higher capital gains tax bill maybe. So what's happening is these adjustments, it's not a tax on the commercial debt forgiven, but it affects... Other aspects of the tax situation. Other so aspects, mean, like yep. Depreciation and capital gains and, as you said... Yes. Uh, losses. Yes, okay. yeah. And these rules came in, I suppose, because on one hand, the shareholder's claiming a capital loss, but on the other hand, what's happening with the, the gain or the, the, gain, it, it, or it, the it, credit? The company <coughs> doesn't get a capital uh, credit. Am I misreading that? Is that... No, no, and that was one of the, um, the member actually asked that. He said, where's the capital gains tie in with the company? Right. But when you look at the debt... It's actually a loan to a shareholder. So in the balance sheet, that's a liability. Right. So there is no asset for there to be a capital gains a capital tax effect. effect. Yeah, I see. Yeah. yeah. Whereas there is with the shareholder because there is an asset. That they hand it over. Yeah, being the amount they're owed. Yeah, So that's, yeah. that's the asset there. So with those different options of reducing those amounts, you can choose which class. 
of the various revenue losses, capital losses, et cetera, that you you wish to reduce the net forgiven amount. Yep. But once you choose a class, you've got to use the maximum extent possible of that of that different category. So if there's revenue losses of thirty thousand dollars, you and you've got a forgiven amount of eighty thousand oh, dollars, right. you must use the thirty thousand for okay. the revenue losses. Yep. And then the next one, capital losses, and yeah, so use the maximum amount there. Okay. Um, look, the only other thing to maybe add is any part of the net forgiven amount is disregarded after those, right. unless the debt is a partnership and there's different rules for a partnership. Oh, okay. And in yep. such cases, the residual amount is applied against the reducible amounts of the partners. So you've got to keep looking to the partners' assets. Well, yeah, well, they, they take each uh, each one takes care of their own liabilities. Yes, yes. Okay, and was the member satisfied with that? He, he, he was, because I think when he um, rang, he was a bit concerned that there's you know, one way of looking at it is you've got a credit in the profit and loss and tax at 27.5%. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, is not a great thing. There were losses in his case. Individually? Uh, no, see, the uh, company had losses, oh, so company, he did sorry, have sorry. to apply some. Yeah. But when you look at the steps, if a company has no revenue losses, yep. no carry-forward capital losses, uh, no depreciable assets on the balance sheet and as the member said these days sometimes with the 20,000 write-off and oh, you know yeah. sometimes you might have it's a, more common than not uh yeah yeah not you might depreciable yeah yeah you might have uh depreciable assets in the balance sheets for tax purposes of zero all oh, right but in reality they still have a market value yeah. so but yeah. we're talking about the um the undeducted amounts of right. these so yeah so there can be situations where the the commercial debt forgiven doesn't actually trigger anything yeah, yeah. side of the company. Okay. Um, even though there is a, can be a capital loss for the shareholder. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he would have been satisfied, I think. So he was, yeah, he mm. he, he was happy um, with the result of that. And yep. it was probably different to how he thought it was going to play out. Okay, yeah. Well, it's, it's an interesting, it's a different scenario, the, the individual shareholder aligning to the company. But look, it might happen yeah. in other cases. And perhaps members can uh, take that bit of knowledge with them that uh, there was ways around it. Yeah, <laughs> and I suppose the shareholder in this case, it was... A, I think it was like tidying things up for a new owner to come in, or oh, so yeah. there was reasons for um, for taking that, getting that taken care of. Yeah, uh, yeah, for taking that. And look, one of the things I didn't mention with uh, the net forgiven amount, oh, yeah. it, it is based on a an assumption of solvency because sometimes oh, well, a yeah. company may not be able to pay yep. due to it being insolvent. Yep. But the commercial debt forgiveness rules are based on, as I say, an assumption that the company. You can keep trading. pay the, the amount. Yep, fair enough. So, a pick uh, selection of the most popular uh, podcast that we've aired this year. Um, we do have one more podcast to go for this year, so please come back next time. <laughs>